we have had a few, a couple of, um, uh, I won't call them interruptions, but we've, we've had some, some uh, things that have precluded our study, some very important necessary things as we have uh, uh, got to know a new missionary couple. And as we had the Sotirs here last week, I just wanted to thank all of you again for just how you welcomed them and, and encouraged them. And I know that, that they were very encouraged by being here. But as, as we do that, I want to begin our study um, with some review. It's just going to be necessary based upon the fact that, you know, it's been several weeks since we, we touched on some of these things. Um, we began our study of the kingdom of God um, with both the triumphal entry uh, and uh, Christ's resurrection. And what we pretty much determined there was that he was, he was entering the kingdom as the king, and then in dying and then rising again, that was when he actually received the kingdom from the Father. Um, it wasn't that he had to do something per se in order to be king. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just the reality of the fact that that was when the kingdom was established as far as him fulfilling all that we were looking ahead to. So what I want to look at was just some of the basic aspects of the kingdom. And again, some of you may not have been here for some of this, and it'll be good for you to, to hear this review. The first is the kingdom of God is future, but it is also now. It's, it's present. The kingdom of God is spiritual, but it's also physical. And the kingdom of God is forever. Now, this is a review, so I'm going to be very brief when I say this. It's future in that that is when it will all fully come to pass and we will be in God's heavenly kingdom. But it is also now, if we are a resident of the kingdom by the fact that we have received Christ as our Savior, all right, that kingdom is still here and now. It's spiritual, just as I mentioned, when we receive Christ, it's a very spiritual thing, but yet there really will be at some point an established physical kingdom that Jesus rules and reigns over. And even when we're talking about heaven, there is still going to be that heavenly Jerusalem and there is going to be the king of kings who reigns forever and ever. And by the way, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, who, where Jesus is going to be, where God's going to be. God is going to be reigning, yes, but Christ is called the king. And then the other thing is, is that it's forever, all right? There, there will be no end to this kingdom. We can just, you know, dust off our history books a little bit and look back and see all kinds of kingdoms that, boy, they just seemed like they were, we call them today, superpowers. And they're gone. And by the way, it'll happen to us someday unless God comes back. It's just going to happen. It's, it's history repeating itself. No nation has ever been exempt from it. except for the nation that God builds, all right? So that's what we're heading toward. Now, along with that, uh, we also see that we called something God's promised plan. And so this is kind of the big picture of what we're looking at in relation to the kingdom of God. We identified the, the main theme of, God's, uh, of Scripture as God's promised plan. God's promised plan actually began in the Garden of Eden, okay, where the Lord... Uh, had said in, in, when he pronounced that the descendant of Mary, of the woman, 
would one day crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat Satan completely, totally. All right? So that was really the, the, the planting the seeds of all of that. But really, it was, it was um, uh, primarily three individuals in God's promised plan that we have. But just getting back to this, we have all of Scripture, all of Scripture that has been revealed to us. And then we have within that the will of God. You know, some of it is just recorded what happened. Then there is the will of God that is along with that. But not everything that we see regarding what God's willed, what God determined, what God planned, flows directly into his promise plan. And his promise plan really is salvation. All right? And so that is the theme that we see going through all of Scripture. Again, establishing that even uh, at the garden uh, but what we have is three individuals that, that um, God worked through. And the first one was Abraham. So uh, after the flood and as, as the world began to be settled and we started to see nations forming, etc., Abraham was called out of what was called Ur of the Chaldees, which was the uh, Iraq-Iran area uh, of the world. And so he was called out of there to what we would call um, the Holy Land or, or, or Palestine today, um, you know, Canaan back then. And, and he was told, you're going to own all of this, all right? And I'm going to give you this land. You will have descendants. I'm going to make you uh, uh, the father of many nations. And we know that Sarah was also promised that as well. And then I'm going to bless you, okay? Through that, we do know that Israel was then at, one, at some point established as a nation. But then within that nation, as an, on an individual basis, God promised David that he would have a throne where the person sitting on it, right, that, 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 that rule would never end. And that God would bless his house specifically. So we have, you know, the world coming down to Abraham. Abraham is then going to be a blessing to the world. But then we, we have it uh, come down to one person, David, within uh, uh, Israel. And then he will then uh, have an heir. And that heir is going to be an heir forever, an, a forever kingdom, which did fulfill Abraham's promise as well this promised plan, and that all pointed to Christ. Amen. Jesus is the fulfillment. Um, and so everything that we see, everything that, that he talked about, and, and then what his uh, disciples carried on is all about Christ uh, being the promise and, and him being the king of the kingdom of God. And I, I thought it was interesting, Matthew 1.17 illustrates this very well as the conclusion of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Look at what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until captivity in Babylon were 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So other than the fact that when they were set aside, right, as a nation briefly, what three individuals do we see there? Who marks out God's kingdom? You know, what, how he established the nation. It was those three individuals. So then we come to Jesus. And we, we just, um, as we talked about the kingdom, we reviewed that really Christ 
is obviously the one who redeems us. We have redemption through Christ. That redemption stretched back to those who had faith, but had not seen that completed yet because Christ had not come. And so they looked ahead, and we'll see that in a minute, but, but so, his, so his sacrifice took care of their sin problem, all those who had faith looking ahead. And then, from then on forth, I call it New Testament people of faith, but really it's, it's the new covenant, same thing, new covenant, those who would come after Jesus, even stretching on from now, anybody who comes to know Christ it's ultimately what? The sacrifice that he made on the cross. And so what we see then is the people of faith of the Old Testament looked ahead to Christ. The people of faith now, we look back on Christ. And you remember even what Jesus said. He said to his disciples, you know, there are those who are coming. You know, their faith is great because they're not going to see me. They're going to trust in whom they have not seen yet. Right? And so we see that all now taking place. And then two weeks ago, we considered the women of the kingdom and how uh, the Lord um, uh, not inserted, but, but um, used uh, women in some very specific ways uh, to, to bring about his kingdom. And we don't have time to illustrate all of those. There were some important points there. But I wanted to talk about one, and it was the woman at the well. Because she really represents uh, that, that second arrow, right, of, of New Testament people of faith and that new covenant that Jesus made and how it was from the cross on, except that she's kind of right in the middle of all that, right? She, she was while he was on earth. But the encounter that he had with her was early on in his ministry. And so this Samaritan woman was not really a Jew. She was not practicing uh, what we would call Judaism. They, they had their own version of that. And they were, they were reviled people, and yet he sought her out. And so I just wanted to review what it says here in John 4, 21 through 24. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, meaning your form of worship, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the time is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so this, again, was, was the fulfillment of God's promised plan, even in this woman's life. And we know that then the gospel was given to the nations. So what does entering the kingdom of God mean? It simply means to believe on Christ as our only hope of rescue from the punishment of our sins. It means to, uh, to follow him. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promised plan, as we've mentioned already. So we begin today's study. As we do that, I want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of what Jesus is explaining he is not strictly giving the gospel, as we are going to see. Uh, that is, the good news of salvation in the passages that we'll be looking at today. Instead, Jesus is describing the traits of those who will be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, 
they're going to be hard to distinguish sometimes, all right, the, the two. But my point is this. It's not like he's talking Nicodemus and he says, you know, you must be born again, right? <laughs> That's not quite what he's saying here. He's describing those who are a part of the kingdom. And so as we begin, what I want to see first is righteousness apart from self. This is going to be a characteristic of someone who is in the kingdom. Um, We're going to stay in Matthew. If we turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me, please. Uh, We'll be in Matthew, I think, other than some slides, uh, pretty exclusively this morning. And we're going to start in verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, these these were just little um, strokes or marks that that were in the, the Hebrew lettering, okay, is what he's talking about here. Well, by no means... Uh, pass from the law till all is fulfilled. However, therefore, therefore, I'm sorry, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So as, as we, we look at this here and we consider what Jesus is saying, and, and I'm sorry, let me read verse 20 as well. For I I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we're looking at this, this is part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it was just simply a, a time early, early, early in Jesus' ministry where a bunch of people gathered to him and he was on a hillside, and so it was a great place for him to be elevated and then speak to the people as they sat before him. And he spoke a, a you know, I, I haven't timed it as far as reading it, but it's a fairly lengthy message. And he was speaking about the kingdom. He was speaking about what that was all about. And we see even earlier on in what, what's called the Beatitudes that he references the kingdom a couple of times. As he was doing this, part of his message was to expose the error of the established religious teachings of the time and the practices that they were doing. So as, he's, as we read and as we consider uh, what Jesus was saying here, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the, Phar- of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven, um, that was a pretty strong statement at the time because these were the upper echelons, right, of, of the spiritual leaders. These, these guys, they knew the law and they did the law as far as how they determined to do it. But it's still true that a person who, who cannot acknowledge that he or she is morally or spiritually bankrupt before God has no need of the kingdom of God. Right? If, if, if I can do it on my own, if, if I have within myself what I need to achieve heaven, then I don't need to do what Jesus is telling me here. 
They cannot and will not enter because they cannot see their need. So Jesus gave example after example and parable after parable calling out the Pharisees for twisting the law and perverting the law in many different ways, the moral law in particular. Their holiness was a sham because it did nothing really for their souls. It was all outward, which is why he called them whitewashed tombs, right, on the outside. But inside, they, were de- they had dead men's bones. Strong language, but accurate. So the people needed a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, but this righteousness wasn't of themselves, and by the way, neither is ours. They needed to receive the righteousness of Christ through faith, faith in him, and again, so do we. So what I want to do is just just point out Philippians 3, 9, which, which really says this perfectly. It says, And be found in him, be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness. So here's Paul speaking personally, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So that is that, ex- that righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's ultimately receiving the righteousness of Christ. And we use that term a lot. It just simply means his goodness and the fact that we don't have it. We need his. So the perfect God of the universe came, took on flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, and then sacrificed himself to pay for our badness to pay for our penalty, and then transferred that goodness to us based upon our faith in him. And this righteousness that we can only receive from Christ results in a desire to obey God's word from the heart. Remember, he said everything was based on the word. He said, I haven't come to to abolish the word of God. I haven't come to set that aside. I've come to fulfill it. The next thing we see here, as far as the characteristics of those entering the kingdom of God, is divine determination. Now, this might not be exactly what you think it is based upon that description, but we'll we'll get there. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew chapter 7. And I'll begin here in verse 21. By the way, if you have a red-letter Bible and you go from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, you'll see this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So we kind of caught toward the beginning, and now we're going to catch the end of this. So let me read to you, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's just pause here for a minute. The actions that we have outwardly have to match the inward heart. If it's just, even if we do it in Jesus' name, if it's just outward actions, right, 
we haven't received that goodness of Christ, and therefore we are still, what? Lawless people, sinful people that will be dealt with. But then it goes on. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descends on the... The rain descends, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain uh, descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. We could even say complete. All right? But then it goes on. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I just want to note what he says here in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So the idea of determination is will. Now I want to look at a, a cross-reference here in Luke 22. Um, Jesus says here, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's an account of Jesus when, when he was praying. Because I want to see the example of Christ through this. So this was the very toward the very end of his earthly life, in the garden, before he went to the cross. And it says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, withdrawn from the disciples that were with him. And, he says, and it says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of, of blood falling down to the ground. We can only imagine the intensity of what Jesus was praying here. But what I want us to see for our purposes this morning is, is that he was resigned to the will of God. On a human level, what he was basically saying was, if there's anything else that can be done, if there's, if there's a plan B, I'm all for it. Because he knew what he was going to be suffering. All right? right. Nevertheless. Right? Nevertheless. His will was subject to the will of the Father. And he went to the cross obediently and willingly. Scriptures tell us later on that, that he went knowing that that was how his kingdom was going to be established, that all things were to be given to him as a result. So I believe that God recorded these words of Christ as an example to us that we need to trust and do the will of God. One other example of that is John 6.38. Obviously, back earlier in his ministry, but it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So if God the Son was here living among us to do God's will expressly, like that was, that was his biggest calling, and then Jesus tells us, you have to do the will of the Father, then we should be about doing that. That should be one of the characteristics that we have as someone who is going to do, um, or who is going to be a part of the kingdom. Now, God has given to us a will. A sense of self-determination. And, and frankly, this is not, how do I say, this is a big thing. We all have our own wills. We all determine 
what to do and not to do many, many times during the day. I open up the refrigerator, and what do I say? I will have this. You know, you are the chosen one now. You know, <laughs> whatever that meal is, right? Well, that's we make those determinations all the time. Now we don't always have the freedom to exercise our will, but but many times that we do. So I want to look at some verses that speak on this subject, starting in Galatians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5 say this, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. That goes back to what? God's will for us, but God's will through Jesus. And then Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, folks, I know for some of you, you can quote this in your sleep. But let it sink in in relation to the will of God. I beseech, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based upon what, what uh, Paul is saying here, based upon everything that I've written to you, how we would say it, in the last 11 chapters about the grace of God in your life, right? based upon all of those mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is beneficial. It's good. It's acceptable. It's something that we should want to receive. And it is perfect. It's complete. God doesn't miss anything. So he has a perfect will for the believer. And as a result of knowing that, we should, instead of being conformed to this world, be transformed and be like Christ. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, uh, it's just a challenge that I put out. It's not, not meant to be like, you know, name a sin that doesn't fall into one of those categories. Again, the scriptures are complete. And just three simple phrases, God encapsulates anything that we can do by act or by will, right? These things, right, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, right? All these things you just mentioned, all these selfish desires, they're going to be gone. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Wow. So there is a New Testament um, uh, connection back to the Gospels for these different principles that we have. Doing God's will is a characteristic of a resident of the kingdom of God, a member of it. So to be clear, we are to desire and pursue and do what God has willed or determined as his redeemed children. And Jesus gave us the perfect example to follow. We, we've talked about the will of God before, but this is part of the kingdom study now. And so I just want to remind us, doing God's will is simply this. It is placing ourselves voluntarily under the authority of God. Just like we would with any other authority. 
except that he is the supreme authority, right? And there is much more benefit to that. The other thing that Jesus says is that we are to have a faith of a child. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Obviously, a little bit later on in his ministry here, Matthew 18. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 6. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. As we consider what Jesus says here, um, and let me, I'm sorry, let me move on here. But whoever causes one of these little ones, sorry, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So there's a warning here even about how we uh, uh, guide children in our lives. But ultimately, we come back to this idea that, uh, that we need to have the faith of a child. Verses 2 through 4 tell us this very specifically. Uh, unless we're converted and become as little children, that, that idea is that we have a change of thinking, right? We, we, have, we have a change in our mind that we think differently. It says we are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10, 15, in a different account regarding children, says it this way. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So again, positively speaking, a characteristic of someone who is in the kingdom is that they are going to have a childlike faith. Let's begin our consideration of this passage by remembering what faith means. Simply put, faith is placing your trust or confidence in something or someone else. Uh, so many times uh, I, I hear the illustration, and it's a good one, oldie but a goodie, as they say, right? Of, of, well, what you're sitting on right now. You had confidence that when you sat down, whatever you're sitting on would remain under you, right? Um, I've had experiences where that hasn't always been the case, okay? Uh, but but here, here's the thing. When we're talking about anything, um, we work for a company, and we have faith that they're going to pay us for our wages, that they're going to do what we've agreed to do. I do this, and then you provide this for me, Right? That's what we say. In the case of faith in God, it is placing our trust in his word, in his promises regarding the gospel. So to add to or take away from the truth of the gospel is to add to or take away from true faith or trust in God. If we add works, then it's no longer faith. And the scriptures are clear about that. We don't have time to look that deeply into it, but the point is this. If I say, yeah, I'm going to take, you know, what you say at face value, but I'm also going to do these other things here to earn it. It's, it's no longer a gift given by faith, is it? And we know that we cannot earn it. If we remove any element of the gospel, such as people saying that Jesus isn't really God, or even that Jesus didn't really die, 
right? He just had some some medical you know issue because of the cross, and then he was revived later on. If we say that, then we no longer have faith because we don't have God the Son as our Savior. We've changed the truth. Remember, worshiping God in spirit, spiritually, and in truth, the right way. That includes the right person. So now we need to consider how Jesus qualified faith in Matthew 18. Jesus said that we need to have the faith of a child. And the verse that we have on the screen here says the same thing. This further illustrates the simplicity of the faith of a child, the simplicity of faith itself. Now, I know for some of us it's going to be a a little bit of a thinking back, but think back to your own childhood, right? If it was a healthy home, not necessarily perfect, but a healthy home, a good home, you demonstrated faith every day when you came home from school, right? That you were going to walk into your home and it was still going to be your home. That your parents weren't going to say, who are you? <laughs> right? What do you want? Every time you sat at the table for a meal, you exercised faith. Simple faith. Mom or dad is going to put something in front of me. I'm going to eat. Every time you went to sleep, you rested your weary little bones in faith. Because the next day, you were going to still be a part of that family. They were going to love you. They are going to care for you. You didn't have to worry about things. Think about a dad telling his young child to jump into his arms. Maybe dad is in the pool and the child is standing on the edge. Or maybe they're sitting on a tree branch and dad says, jump down. The little one jumps with that childlike faith that Jesus is talking about, trusting that dad would catch him. Now, I don't want to ask all of you if you had a perfect record in catching your kids, okay? <laughs> But think about it. Think about it. Here's this little child, whether they had those little floaties on or not, okay? They're standing at the edge of the pool. And you're saying, jump. Well, that's their whole life. This, this is not, you know, an experience that they, and we're talking about a small child, right? This is not an experience that they've necessarily had over and over again. And you're just, have your arms out, and to them, you have an ocean around you. I'm going to catch you, right? Now, now, here's the thing. When we put ourselves as adults in a situation like that, right, what's our response? <laughs> yeah, right, buddy. <laughs> Am I wrong? Hey, trust me, I'm going to do this for you. <laughs> I don't think so. What does a child do? Whew. Just jumps out into the air. Little splash, maybe got to wipe their face off and everything, and giggles because dad caught them. Simple, childlike faith. How about 
a child slipping their hand into mom's hand. What is the child doing in that situation? That child is completely trusting mom to lead, to protect, and to not let go. Amen. Right? Now, there's all kinds of situations for this. One could be, hey, we're going to cross the street. Hold my hand. Okay, I'm with you. I don't want to get runned over. Right? But have you ever seen when a child is uncomfortable and just involuntarily almost, their hand goes up? into their mom or dad's hand? You've seen that. Folks, that is the childlike faith that we are to exercise with God. As our Heavenly Father, we just leap at it. And by the way, it's not a blind faith because that faith is about the Spirit and truth. Hebrews 11, 1 through 13 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. Now, I sometimes use a different version that kind of explains things well, and this is called the, the 20th century New Testament. And it says this. I'm just going to read the first part here. Verse 1. Faith is the realization of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. So faith is the substance or realization of what we are hoping for. In other words, faith makes things that we are waiting to come to pass a present reality in our lives. So we're talking about salvation. Are, are you waiting on salvation to somehow someday take place hope maybe you with me if if you're in the kingdom if you're a child of god this is a settled thing it's a reality now i'm not in heaven i still have the res the, the the after effects of sin in my life right my knee really hurt this morning and I know you're a whiner. I, I know some of you have much more. I'm just saying that's, that's an effect, right? Folks, we have a present reality. We, we, have, we have that such confidence in what God promised that we don't have to wait till it's completely come true to know that it is and to experience it now. That's what that means. Faith does that. Acting in a similar way, faith is the evidence or proof of what is spiritual we cannot physically see. I believe that is real for me. Now, people can say, well, yeah, that's your reality. No, really, it's trusting in what is reality. That's what this is talking about. So a childlike faith regarding Christ's kingdom is putting your complete trust and confidence in Jesus. We depend upon him for our eternal life by trusting our very soul to him. Do you think he doesn't understand that? That's exactly why he came. Because he understands it is a soul problem. It is an eternal forever issue. 
The more simple and uncomplicated our response is to God in all things, the closer we are to exercising the childlike faith Jesus intends for us to live out as a child of God, as a member of the kingdom. Then one more thing we're going to look at before we conclude here is sufficiency beyond self. In Matthew 19, let me start in verse 16 for you. Matthew 19, verse 16. It's a story of a rich young ruler who uh, crossed paths with Jesus. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now notice Jesus didn't say, I'm not. <laughs> okay. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, can we pause there for just a minute? Did Jesus list all of them? No. Which ones are missing? The ones about the Lord. These are all horizontal at this point. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, and what, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, at first blush, we might look at that and say, Wait a minute, Jesus was just telling us that we have to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. They were experts in following the commandments. Right? What's going on here? He's, he's telling this guy, follow the commandments. He's telling this guy, do something. The key there is, and come follow me. Amen. That's the key. So then we go on. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we have the kingdom tied in. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who can then be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The subject that comes up with this young ruler is money or wealth. We could replace money with education or status and come up with the same problem, right? Just, just fill in the blank. For this gentleman, it was money. But ultimately, it was the fact that he didn't want to give it up to place his full confidence in Christ. So I remember a conversation years ago with a young man in Romania. It was one of those unique conversations that, I, that I've ever had with someone about Christ. And it's very similar to what we just read. It had, it's been a while since I've said this, so I'm going by memory here, but I believe he recognized I was an American and saw me bow my head to give thanks for my meal. By the way, in most of the world, we stick out. Okay, 
Here, you can throw anybody into the, the American melting pot. It's like, you know, eh, you know whatever. You, you find out they're from a different country when they start speaking or tell you, right? Because, you know, we are who we are. You go someplace else, you stick out. And so when he recognized that, um, the core of what he asked me, because he asked me something, uh, was what was the secret to American success? Now, I must have looked pretty successful, you know. It's like, it wasn't even an expensive restaurant. But anyway, so I tried to kindly and gently as possible explain that following, I'm sorry, let me back up. I missed something here. He tied in my faith. He said, you know, in essence, will knowing Jesus, will following Jesus help me with that? So he saw, just from his perspective, remembered at this time, communism had not been gone from Romania, actually never really left, but had been, you know, suppressed in Romania for very long. And so he's looking to the United States and, and he sees me and he sees me as this American Christian and he's thinking, okay, you know, this must be the formula, all right? So I try to gently and kindly as possible explain to him that following Jesus was not about getting ahead in life. And we know that sometimes it's the opposite as far as this life is concerned. Now, I really can't remember exactly what I said, but I know that I gave him the gospel and a brief explanation of what it really meant to follow Christ. And his reaction must have been similar to this rich young ruler's reaction. Because he just kind of sat back. I could tell he was disappointed, and he politely ended the conversation. It, It really was one of the saddest moments I've had in my life. It's just simple, you know, not by chance, but still, I, I wasn't seeking this out. And he asked me that question. And, and again, I, I gave him the, the best answer I could. But, folks, it was like, well, you know, what must I do, right? That's what he was asking. What must I do? Is, is, is Jesus the magic ingredient? And it's like, it's not... It's not what the word says. So we saw from the conversation that Jesus had with this rich young ruler that there are those who miss heaven because they cannot give up what this world has to offer. Right? I mean, he was disappointed. He was sad. It didn't stop him. But we as Christ's followers, as citizens of God's kingdom, can also lose sight of what we have in Jesus and all that is to come. We can get caught up in earthly things and miss out on some tremendous blessings and even heavenly treasures by settling for some of the worthless things of this world. I'll remind us of what we studied in Colossians as we look to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's just think of it this way. We are all, we can be, preoccupied 
with what we can get out of this world. Now, I'm not saying that you can't prepare for, you know, your later days when you're not able to work, you want to take care of yourself. I get all that, okay? We're not talking about that. We're talking about trusting in what we have. So let's just kind of encapsulate that into gold bars, right? Gold bars are what you, what are represented by the things that you have done or earned or might trust in in this world. Can we remember that heaven is paved with gold? That we're basically just going to walk on it? The perspective is completely different. And so we, we don't, we're completely dependent on the Lord. We, our sufficiency is in him. So let's consider then what all this means to us. We're not required to know or understand everything about the kingdom in order to understand and believe the gospel. All right. But these qualities that Jesus explains should be evident in our lives as one of his followers, as someone who was a part of the kingdom. We should live our lives based upon the gift of righteousness that God gave to us through Christ, through his sacrificial death. We can do nothing to work out our own um, uh, death sentence that work out of our own death sentence that we earned. Right? It's, it's like a prisoner who has, you know, the, you know how they say, uh, you know, they killed three people and, and they have, you know, uh, 27 consecutive, you know, sentences or whatever. You know, it's like uh, you can only die once. You know what I mean? Like, but but the, the point is they're not going to get out, right? Well, without a pardon, without receiving what Christ did, we're not going to get out right. ever. Only Jesus could pay for our sin with his sinless life. That amazing, glorious exchange. Much of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount goes on to explain how we're to live based upon our faith in him. So we should, we should also live as God, as God has determined for us to live. In other words, follow his will to continually align our motivations to his motivations. Simply put, to do what he desires, to do what he wills. We need to approach God and his word with a childlike trust and abandon. Again, we're not just flinging ourselves off into space, hoping that somehow we land right. We have a God who has proven himself, who has given us record, and we can trust him. This begins at the point of our salvation when we trust Jesus to rescue us from our sin. But we are living out that childlike faith every time we trust his word by obeying and following him. Every time. Just like I mentioned before, when, when we would come home from school or when we would sit down at the dinner table or ask our parents a question or whatever, the assumption is they're going to continue to be my mom and dad. They're going to, we're going to continue to have a home here. I'm going to continue to belong. They just simply take it by simple faith. And that's the way we're to be. We're to just trust that what God is telling us to do is not just the right thing, 
but it's beneficial for us and it's going to bring him glory. And then if we want to live like uh, we are a child of the all-powerful, all-knowing King of Kings, we must give up our self-sufficiency. We need to grasp how frail and needy we really are. We must throw off our efforts and desire to be self-sufficient and in control. Is that easy, folks? No. Now, I'm not advocating, as we've talked about before, some let go and let God mentality. Um, that's, that's not what I'm advocating. Also, will we just simply snap our fingers one day and say, you know, I'm going to do this and it's going to be reality? No, it's going to take some work. It's going to take focus and it's going to take effort, especially as we have to battle what I consider to be the American independent mindset, right? Now, we talked about a childlike faith, but we can also relate to childhood for just a moment, right? When we're trying to help a child do something, and sometimes we need to let them go and let them learn, right? But other times, you know, nah, I, I do this myself. No, no, you're not going to do that yourself. You're going to hurt yourself, right? Or harm something or someone else, right? So, no, you're not going to do this. No, I do this myself, right? No. We don't operate as a child of God independent from him. We are completely and wholly dependent on him. That is the other characteristic of being his child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do to celebrate your goodness today. We thank you that certainly there are elements of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in what we talked about. But as Jesus was describing how someone thinks and how someone acts, he was describing someone who was a kingdom follower of yours. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today who would have to look at their life and say, well, you know, that's not where I'm at. I, I've not trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this life on my own. Lord, I pray that you'll work in their heart and life even today. That they will see the futility of trying to be good enough when we can't and that they will take on your goodness your goodness that is a, a free gift based upon our faith heavenly father i pray that as we who are your followers seek to be just that to follow you to be a good citizen of the kingdom to be a good subject as we think of placing ourselves under your authority, Lord, I, I pray that we'll just trust you. We'll trust what we've already seen in people's lives. We'll, we'll, we'll even trust, Lord, the things that we have seen not to do and the results. But Lord, I pray that we will find our full confidence in how you are leading us and how you want us to live in our relationships, in our thought life, in our marriages, in our work, in business dealings, 
whatever it might be, Lord, how we treat other people, how we treat one another in this body of believers, all of that. Heavenly Father, you give us some very specific instructions. And as we continue to look at your word, I pray that as we know your will, that we'll respond in faith and do it in your strength. You are a good and a great God. We worship you today, but Lord, we want to place ourselves under your authority because you're king. Simple fact, you are the one who rules over our life, particularly as we have trusted you as our king and savior. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.